Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Anger can make you do some pretty silly stuff. Just ask Phil Wellman. Phil Wellman was the former manager of the Mississippi Braves. In a game several years ago, Phil stormed the umpire and started screaming over a call. Second, he covered the home plate with dirt. Third, he pulled up the third base bag and threw it into center field. Then it really got crazy. Phil imitated a commando. He dropped to the ground and crawled through the grass to the pitcher's mound. Pretending that the rosin bag was a grenade, he lobbed it toward the feet of the umpire whose call he had questioned. Well, Coach Wellman's tirade earned him a three-game suspension and some unwanted attention. His embarrassing antics were shown repeatedly on national television. Phil Wellman became a laughing stock to adults and a poor example to younger fans. Anger can make you do some pretty silly stuff. Just ask Jonah, the former prophet in Israel. Jonah lived in the 8th century B.C., and in comparison, his antics were just as silly and stupid as those of the coach. You see, Jonah also got angry at a call. He argued with God and got ejected. In the end, Jonah also earned a three-game suspension. He spent three days in the belly of a great fish. And Jonah's embarrassing behavior has been replayed countless times for God's people as they've read about him in the book that bears his name. For the next few weeks, we'll be studying the book of Jonah, and we'll learn from the angry prophet that anger can make you do some pretty silly stuff. But understand that to really know a man, to know what a man does, you first have to try and understand the man. You see, Jonah began as a faithful prophet, called by God, servant to God's people. He had a rich spiritual heritage. It's interesting that none other than our Lord Jesus made several references to Jonah. The most obscure is where I'll start. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus had returned to his hometown of Nazareth when on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. He came that day to reveal his intentions. Set out his plan, his mission, his, his agenda. Well, his words that day constituted a dream come true, especially for people who had been battered and beaten down by sin. Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What a campaign platform. Good news, healing, freedom, vision, peace, hope. 
Jesus would have earned my allegiance. He would have gotten my vote right then and right there. But that wasn't the crowd's reaction. A scoffer filled with pride, he, he began to shout from the back of the room. You see, he knew that this was only a promise that God could fulfill, that Jesus had quoted a passage that spoke of the Messiah. And as far as he was concerned, as far as this cynic knew, Jesus was just another homeboy from Nazareth. Well, the doubters shouted, Is this not Joseph's son? His skepticism sucked all the hope, all the life right out of the room. Well, Jesus went on that day to describe how God had met this kind of prideful resistance before. In the days of Elijah, the belief had gotten so great in Israel that God had to go beyond the Jewish border to find real faith. He worked deliverance in a Phoenician outpost known as Zarephath. The prophet Elijah had been sent to a Jewish widow and her son living outside the territory of his people. And God had worked two miracles for this pair. First, he had caused her flower bin to never run out and her jar of oil to never run dry. Throughout the famine that had beset the land, this woman and her son had a continual supply. And then when the boy unexpectedly died, Elijah worked another amazing miracle. He stretched himself out on the child's corpse three times, and he cried out to God. We're told in 1 Kings 17, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back. Now, it might sound a little fishy to you, but according to Jewish tradition, the boy Elijah resurrected was Jonah. Now, if we believe the rabbis, we can make two assumptions. First, Jonah knew that God's love reached beyond the borders of Israel. Yes, Yahweh is the God of the Hebrew nation, but he cares about people in other countries as well. God is the God of all the earth. It's interesting that Jonah is the only prophetic book that doesn't mention either Israel or Judah. Obviously, this story is God's attempt to enlarge the heart of the Jews, but in doing so, it stresses God's great love for all people. If God loved a widow living in Phoenicia, he was willing to show mercy to anybody, anywhere. It would have been no surprise for God to offer mercy to Nineveh. And then the second thing this shows, apparently, Jonah was acquainted with resurrection. And this won't be the last time he'll experience it. Later in the book, we'll discuss the idea that Jonah actually died in the sea and his body was preserved for three days in the belly of the fish until he was resurrected and vomited out on dry ground. When Jesus says in Matthew 12, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It could be the symbolism was meant to be taken very, very literally. We know for certain that Jonah was a contemporary of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. It's possible he was their understudy, maybe a participant in the school of the prophets started by Elisha. Was Jonah there the day they were chopping trees down by the Jordan River? They were building an addition to the school, we're told, when an axe head flew off one of the handles and sunk into the river. Well, Elisha, he threw in a stick, and the iron axe head floated to the surface. I believe that miracle could have been just for Jonah. 
God wanted Jonah to know he has ways to retrieve what gets tossed into the water and sinks to the bottom. Well, verse 1 begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word Jonah means dove, but by nature this man was hawkish. He was more a hawk. Jonah was extremely nationalistic, very alt-Israeli. He believed strongly and rightly that the Hebrews were God's chosen people, destined to rule the world. And Jonah's first prophetic assignment had been a great joy. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 says of King Jeroboam, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah. Jonah had predicted victory for Israel and the expansion of her borders. Judgment on the Gentiles and blessing on the Jews. Man, this was a prophecy right up Jonah's alley. But Jonah's next assignment was the shocker. The next words here in verse 2, through the prophet for a loop. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This meant God loved Assyrians. If God didn't love people, he wouldn't care when they disobeyed him. This was why God was upset with their wickedness. He loved them so much. It's interesting, later in chapter 4, verse 2, after Jonah preaches in Nineveh, the Assyrians repent and God forgives them. Jonah reveals what he was thinking when God first called him. He says this, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. In short, God, I knew you'd do this. Jonah knew his Bible. He knew God's nature. He even knew from his own experience that God is rich in mercy. He's willing to reach beyond the borders of Israel to show love on people who don't deserve it. Here's why Jonah refused to go to Nineveh. He loved God, but he hated Assyrians. And he knew that God, he knew God all too well. He knew that God was merciful and loving, that his love and mercy are inexhaustible, that God likes the unlikely. He loves the unlovable. Jonah knew that if he preached to Assyria and they repented, it would be just like God to forgive those people and cleanse them and make them his own. And that was just more than Jonah could stomach. And there are a couple of reasons why. First, I believe Jonah was just plain prejudice. Somewhere along the line, he had copped the attitude that the Jewish people were better than everybody else. Maybe you've heard the old joke. Question, why did God make the Gentiles? Answer, somebody's got to pay retail. Well, the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that God created Gentiles as kindling for the flames of hell. They hated anyone who was not a Jew. I'm not sure Jonah was prejudiced against Gentiles in general, but he certainly despised the Assyrians. The people of Nineveh represented everything that Jonah hated. They were savage and cruel and bent on world domination. In fact, for the next 100 years, the nation of Assyria would be the main threat to Israel's security. 
To ask Jonah to preach salvation to the Ninevites of Assyria would be like asking a Holocaust survivor to love the Nazi commander of a death camp. Or like asking an African American to share Christ with a white supremacist. Or even like asking an Atlanta Falcons fan to pray for a New England Patriots victory. (laughs) Jonah wanted to see Assyria slaughtered, not saved. He prayed for Nineveh's destruction, not her deliverance. Jonah was a spiritual bigot. He refused to believe that though God, though Israel was God's chosen people, there was room in God's heart for other people as well. Hey, Jonah was the prejudiced prophet. Reminds me of the Chinaman and the Jew. They were eating lunch at the same deli. With no provocation at all, the Jew walks over and he punches the Chinaman right in the mouth. Well, this Chinese fellow, he rubs himself and he asks, he says, what in the world was that for? The Jewish man answers, he says, that was for Pearl Harbor. The Chinaman can't believe it. He said, we had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. That was the Japanese, not the Chinese. The Jewish man, he shrugs and he says, hey, it doesn't matter. Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, they're all the same to me. He sits down. Well, moments later, the Chinese man, he walks over and he cold cocks the Jew. Well, after the Jew picks himself off off the ground, he, he kind of rubs himself and he asks, he says, what in the world was that for? The Chinaman answers, the Titanic. <laughs> the Jewish man, he scratches his head. He says, wait a minute, I don't get it. What did the Jews have to do with sinking the Titanic? The Chinese man tells him, he says, Goldberg, Feinberg, Iceberg, they're all the same to me. <laughs> Realize... All prejudice is as irrational as that exchange in the deli. That's why I started with the premise, anger makes you do and say silly, stupid, illogical stuff. And there is nothing more illogical than racial prejudice. Bigotry is an affront to God. It narrows and restricts and puts limits on God's love. Hey, it shrinks God's heart to one group, my group. It's the ultimate selfishness. I once had a lady in our church. She told me, she said, prejudice is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. And she was right. Prejudice is the pinnacle of pride. Because you're not just like me. You must be inferior. What heresy. Prejudice is a sin against God's love and creativity. But let me suggest that there are more, there was more to Jonah's hatred than just racial prejudice. When Jonah gets mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, we're told that he was from Gath Hefer. This was a Galilean village about two miles northeast of Nazareth. Now it could be that he was born there and then later moved to Phoenicia, or it could be that the widow from Zarephath. She remarried and moved back inside the borders of Israel to the region of Galilee in this town of Gath-Hefer. This is important for during the reign of Jeroboam's predecessors, King Omri and Ahab and Jehu, Sidon and Galilee become the site of terrible atrocities. The army of a militaristic monster, the nation of Assyria, turned Galilean grasslands, their pleasant fields, into killing fields. You see, the the Assyrian army was the most heinous, the most brutal, 
the most bloodthirsty to ever roam the earth. They lived by the creed, might makes right. They were a sword with no conscience, merciless and always on the march. Several Assyrian inscriptions speak of forays into the Galilee and northern Israel. War parties pillaged and raided, just enough to intimidate the king of Samaria. Israel would then pay tribute by a few more years of protection. Hosea, a contemporary of Jonah, predicted that God would ultimately use Assyria to bring judgment on Israel. Samaria was toppled in 722 B.C. All this happened during the days of Jonah. Several years ago, while in Germany, I visited the town of Rothenburg, which has a torture museum. Nah, a torture museum, that's not something you see every day. And so I decided to check it out. And I saw multiple methods of torture used in medieval Europe. Stocks and gallows and guillotines and all manner of stretching devices, etc., etc. But nothing I saw in that museum was as barbaric and as brutal as the Assyrian-style torture. They not only committed shameful atrocities, they bragged about it afterwards. Throughout the ruins of ancient Nineveh, archaeologists have uncovered inscriptions of the boasts of Syrian kings. Here's a sampling. One king wrote, 3,000 captives I burn with fire. Another one wrote, I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who rebelled. Still another, from sons I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses their ears, and their fingers. Of many, I put out their eyes. I bound their heads to posts around about the city. Another king boasted, I cut off their heads and formed formed them into piles. This was a common practice among the Assyrians. A mound of skulls outside the gates of the city were a warning to the neighbors, you better not mess with Assyria. Assyrian kings liked to bury their enemies alive in the walls of their buildings. Defeated kings were led around on dog collars and housed in kennels. They often held their captives on the ground and literally ripped out their tongues by the root. They would burn their enemy's wife and kids before their very eyes. One Assyrian king boasted, Many within the border of my own land I flayed and spread their skins upon the walls. The torturer would strap a man to the ground and make an incision in his fingertips. From there, he would begin to peel back his skin slowly and methodically. His skin would later be used as wallpaper and what was left of the man baked to death in the hot sun. One of the most famous Assyrian tortures was to take a javelin, thrust the sharp end through a man's rib cage and out the top of his head, Then the other end was stuck in the ground. The victim was left to squirm in pain on the end of a spear until he died. This was the precursor of what was later developed into crucifixion. Imagine watching this happen to your father or your brother or a son or maybe a friend with whom you'd grown up. In the days of Jonah, Assyria was not the threat to Israel that they would become. But Assyria was growing in power and aggression, and they were perfecting their methods of war and intimidation. Apparently, they practiced occasionally on random villages south of Iraq in Syria, even as far away 
as Israel and the Galilee? I have no idea. I'm, I'm just speculating now. But what if you lived in Gath Heifer? On a green grassy hillside, your family grew a few crops. You grazed several sheep. Then one day, a band of Assyrian warriors rode up and set fire to your fields. They impaled your father on a spear. They flayed your brother with a knife and burned your two sisters before your very eyes. God says, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Would you love these Assyrians? Really now, would you love them? In 2002, Don Gillum's 18-year-old daughter Susie was a victim of a date rape. Susie was an 18-year-old college freshman. After the incident, she refused to talk, even to her family. She switched schools. She tried to get on with her life, but the scars of the trauma festered. Susie withdrew from everyone. She developed an eating disorder and lost weight. Finally, she was confronted by her mom. Susie told her what had happened. It took a year of prayer and support, but Susie overcame the pain and she regained a normal life. But her father, Don, fought a battle of his own, for he wanted revenge at any cost. Don even developed a plan to kill the man who had wounded his daughter. Don also withdrew into his own private world. He would get up, he would go to work, he would think about his plan he would try to forget. He would come home. He would try to sleep. He would dream about his plan. He later remembered thinking, I plotted to drive through the campus and use my Smith & Wesson 243 caliber bolt-action rifle. I'd sit in the parking lot as long as necessary until he walked by. Then I'd get it out of my head and Susie could start eating again. One night at dinner, Don couldn't take it anymore. As he watched his daughter sitting there in despondency, he got up from the table and he headed down to the basement. There he started cleaning the rifle that he was planning to use. That's when Don's youngest son, Jeffrey, came trotting downstairs. What you doing, Dad? Don kept cleaning his rifle. He never looked up. Can I help you clean? Don just sat there in silence. You going hunting? By this time, Jeffrey was standing a few inches in front of his dad. Don finally looked up at little Jeffrey. He recalls, our eyes met. Jeff's eyes brim with tears. He knows. Dear God, I think my son knows my plan. Don stopped polishing his gun and he laid it on the floor. He said, come here, boy. Give your daddy a hug. Jeffrey wrapped his arms around Don as tight as a cobra. Don said later, Jeffrey's love was somehow stronger than my hatred. His hug began to crumble my rage like a sledgehammer breaking a wall chip by chip. Sweet Jesus, what have I been thinking? My job's not finished here. Forgive me, Lord. Jeffrey isn't raised. If I go to jail, he won't have a father. God, help me. As Don locked his gun away, he made a choice to forgive. He said, the decision started in my head, not from any feeling... I had to let go of the hate. It was killing me. Choking back tears, father and son walked upstairs. In the interview where I read his story, Don's final words were, I came so close. I came so close. 
And as with Don's hatred, I believe some incident fueled Jonah's deep down animosity. Prejudice, even racial prejudice, often stems from a personal hurt. You're victimized by someone of another group, and you take out your anger on other members of that group. I believe that Jonah was somehow violated by Ninevites. Either he felt firsthand, or he saw, or he had heard of a horrible atrocity. Jonah felt victimized by Assyrians, and now he hated them. To hell with Ninevites! Once it was a married couple, they were struggling to find harmony in their relationship. There was constant friction. They finally decided to talk to a counselor. Well, as they discuss their problems, the exasperated wife, she blurts out. She says, I have, we have absolutely nothing in common. In fact, we don't even hate the same people. <laughs> this was the prophet Jonah's problem in his relationship with God. He hated the people that God loved. Once I got a phone call from a lady who had been a victim, she described for me the crime that had been committed against her and her husband. She was so mad. I mean, you could just sense her anger boiling up in the conversation. And when I told her that God wanted her and her husband to seek peace and be willing to forgive and seek reconciliation, it was more than this lady could stomach. She got angry with me for the very suggestion Hey, in this lady's mind, I needed to hate the people that she hated. This was Jonah. Rather than risk the Ninevites repenting and turning to God, he would rather flee to the ends of the earth and become a brother to some Assyrian. I hate to go here. And I wouldn't unless it was absolutely necessary. But who do you hate? with this same kind of toxic strand of malice? An ex-spouse? A dad who was a drunkard? An uncle who abused you sexually? Perhaps a boss or a co-worker who doesn't like you and seeks daily to make your life miserable? Who do you hate with this kind of hatred? What if God called on you to share the gospel with this person you hate? To bring to heaven the very person you've sent to hell a million times under your breath? What if? Jonah decides he doesn't want to cooperate with God's missionary efforts to Nineveh. He declines the assignment. He has a few sick days stored up, so he decides to cash them in. Jonah's taking a vacation. He's shutting off the email. He's turning off his phone, man. God will just have to find another prophet for this one. And Jonah walks 20 miles to the Israeli port of Joppa. He buys a one-way ticket to the farthest destination on their schedule, which happens to be Tarshish. Jonah is now a man on the run. An angry, hate-filled Jonah does a very, very silly, stupid thing. Verse 3. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is as dumb as it gets. <laughs> Jonah tries to flee from a transcendent, omnipresent God. You know, it's been said anger is a wind that blows out the lamp of the mind. 
Jonah, what in the world is going on in your gray matter, buddy? Nobody can shake God. How Jonah planned to run from God's presence is a silly thought indeed. God is everywhere at all times. In fact, running from God is like running from the air. Acts 17 tells us that in God we live and move and have our being. God is all around us at all times. There's no corner of the universe that God doesn't occupy. If Jonah's boat had actually made it to Tarshish, God would have been standing on the dock helping to tie off the ship to the moorings. Our God is inescapable. The afternoon that Hurricane Irma blew through Atlanta, I headed to the airport early that morning for a flight to Pennsylvania. I decided to get out of town. I did so in the nick of time. But in the parking ride shuttle from my car to the airport, I met an elderly man who introduced himself as Jimmy Jones from Moultrie, Georgia. He was an interesting fellow, and I started making conversation. As a matter of fact, I just wanted to talk to him. And since he was from Moultrie, Georgia, which was in South Georgia, I suggested that he might be running from the hurricane. Little did I know my suggestion would set him off. Set up straight, looked me eyeball to eyeball, and he challenged me. He said, young man, have you heard of a man named Jonah? It's in the parking ride shuttle. He tried to run from God and got swallowed by a great fish. You can't run from God. I didn't argue with Jimmy Jones from Old Tree, Georgia. I agreed with him. And then it's interesting. When I got to the Chick-fil-A to get my biscuit that morning, I looked up at the morning newspaper, and guess what the headline said? Nowhere to hide. Both the USA Today and Jimmy Johnson from Moultrie, Georgia, reminded me of the same truth. You cannot run from God. He'll find you. The Honorable Marks Brooks is a British judge. He sits on the bench in a court in southeast London. Judge Moore seems to be your prim and proper English jurist. In typical British fashion, he wears a wig and long robes. But there's another side to Judge Moore. Recently, a sex offender on trial tried to make a break for the door. The only thing that stood between the defendant and freedom was Marks Moore. The main doors of the courtroom were barricaded, but the judge's corridor had been left open. When the defendant sprinted for the door, the judge met him in the hallway. He grabbed him around the neck and brought him down. They tumbled down several steps. Well, the bad guy jumped up and continued to race down the corridor. Judge Moore stayed in hot pursuit. When the sex offender stopped to push open a fire door, the judge caught him and tackled him. Moore held him on the ground until the prison officials arrived, proving you can't outrun the long legs of the law, especially when it's Judge Moore. And neither can you outrun the long legs of the Lord. This is what the psalmist experienced. In Psalm 139, he writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Often a convicted felon is ordered by the court to wear an electronic tracker 
around his or her ankle. But understand, you and I got one on too. We do. For everywhere you go, everyone you're with, everything you do, God knows where you goes. He does. He is tracking your whereabouts. God wants you to walk in his will. We're told that Jonah bought a ticket to Tarshish. Where Tarshish was actually located, we're not sure. There are all kinds of theories here. Carthage in North Africa or Italy or Spain or Great Britain or India or even the New World. Wherever it was, the Phoenicians traded regularly with this city. Most scholars think it was the westernmost tip of the Mediterranean, perhaps on the coast of Spain. But here was Jonah's strategy. God called him to arise and go east, 500 miles overland to Assyria, to Nineveh. Jonah arose all right, but he headed west. He boarded a slow boat with the intention of sailing the seas 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. I once heard that a heart specialist can check the condition of a patient's heart by just sending him the bill. (laughs) The patient sees his cardiologist's exorbitant fees, and he can have another heart attack. Well, God sent Jonah instructions that immediately tested his heart. Will Jonah trust God, or will he hold on to his prejudice? And let me ask you today, will you trust God, or will you hold on to your prejudice? What is your Nineveh? What is your Nineveh? That one place you said you just wouldn't go. The one thing you said you could never do. That one person you said you would never love. What's your Nineveh? Is your prejudice more important than God's purpose? It's interesting, no matter what the Assyrians might have done to Jonah, one thing is for sure, they didn't harm him to the degree that they had sinned against God. And if God could love the Ninevites, Jonah could at least deliver God's warning and extend God's mercy, we should always remember there is one force more powerful than our hate, and that's God's love. Which one will win out in your heart this morning? Love or hate? Don't be a Jonah. Be like Jesus, who even while they crucified him, prayed for his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Here's what we're going to learn next week. Anger is just one letter short of danger. Anger is just one one letter short of danger. Jonah's anger, his hatred, his prejudice caused him to do some very silly, stupid stuff. He rejected God's call. He tried to flee from God's presence. Jonah thought he could stiff arm God's will and still score. Jonah was wrong. God tackled Jonah. Whatever God's calling you to do today, don't run. Don't try to escape. Don't think life will be better for you if you escape God's will. That is a lie from the pit of hell. 
I'm not telling you God's will will always be easy. To the contrary, it could be extremely difficult. The will of God can mean staying in a difficult marriage or raising a difficult child or sticking in a difficult job or loving a difficult neighbor or even enduring a difficult illness. But even if God's will is hard, there is no better way for you to spend your life than to embrace it and love it and learn to live it out in faith and love and perseverance. God's will plus a thousand hardships is infinitely better than your own ease and comfort in Tarshish. Jonah has some important lessons to learn. And so do we.